Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Hi, welcome to episode number 13 from the Permaculture and Future podcast. I'm your co-host, Zoe Robinson. Well, here we are, episode number 13. I'm Josh Robinson, and today we're continuing down this path that we've been on for the last few weeks here, where we've been looking at the implications of the coronavirus, COVID-19, and our daily lives, but looking through this lens of permaculture to begin to arrive at potential solutions. And my guest on today's show is someone that has been in the permaculture space for over 20 years. In fact, he was one of the original co-instructors of the permaculture design course that I took in 2002. My guest today is Eric Olson. Eric is an internationally recognized permaculture teacher, educator, and author. And he's an award-winning landscaping contractor and a lifelong activist. He's specialized in home-scale regenerative design, including water harvesting, food forests, seed saving, community organizing, habitat development, erosion control, and has been building topsoil for over 20 years. And in our conversation today, Eric and I talk about looking forward, looking through this problem and for the opportunity, for the solutions that are often right in front of our eyes. We start off looking at what Eric calls the two paths moving forward. First, starting what he called globalized localization, followed by acknowledging and healing our local communities. And from there, we get into a discussion on utilizing permaculture and moving forward through this crisis. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a lot out of it. And I'll see you all at the end. Hey, one quick thing before today's show. I just want to thank all the people that have contributed to this show. To those that have given feedback and that have given us reviews and ratings on iTunes, it really means a lot. And then for a couple folks that have even gone above and beyond and even donated to the show, I really want to shout out and thank you. So Roy Houston, thanks for their ongoing contribution to the show. It means a lot. And then Tom Studio just uh, donated to the show here too. Tom looks like he's from the UK, so it's part of our UK contingent. All right, well, here's the show. Well, welcome, Eric, to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. 
for guests that are just tuning in and never never heard of like what you do and some of the work that you're doing, you want to give a little short introduction to you know how you've been involved in permaculture and some of the things that you've been doing. Absolutely. When I was 19, I became an activist learning about genetic engineering. And in Northern California, there was the Headwaters Forest fight to protect old growth redwoods. And that sort of turned me on to some of the issues that are happening in the world. And at, an, at 19 years of age, I wasn't feeling drawn to go to college. And I discovered permaculture. And I discovered what for me was a system of design and a system of, of activation, really that could generate resources for our community that could heal the land, clean the water, build community in meaningful ways. And so 20 plus years later, here I am, I've started multiple nonprofit organizations. We've given away hundreds of community gardens over those years, started a couple educational institutions and done advanced trainings and permaculture design certificate courses. And then also have founded a few small businesses focused on permaculture design and ecological landscaping. And we now, Permaculture Artisans, is a, we're a licensed contracting company. We've got 20 employees. We work with clients all throughout Northern California and really create you know, meaningful career paths for our staff and our community. And so coming at it from all these different angles, ultimately for me, it's about how can I, how can we make the greatest positive impact in our society, in our community, through the regeneration of ecologies, through the regeneration of landscapes? And so bringing those two parts together, bringing together building topsoil and cleaning water with building local community resilient systems, connecting people back to nature, and really in many ways creating a safety net of a type of local economy that can thrive into the future. Awesome. I mean, I've been watching and following kind of your work over those, you know, the past couple decades. I mean, how long have you actually been teaching permaculture? I got into teaching permaculture in my early 20s. Yeah. Starhawk and Penny Livingston Stark, I was a, a mentee of theirs. And they pulled me right into the teaching team as early as when I was like 22. When I was 23, I was teaching full PDCs already at that time. So it's been a long journey. Yeah. Well, when I took my design course in those early, I don't know, 2001, 2002, you were one of the guest teachers in that course. And, uh, you know, ever since then, just been watching the work you've been doing with permaculture artisans and then more recently with the Skill Center and some of these other projects. And it's, it's really amazing just to see this movement really begin to progress and almost become, you know, its own thing where the, this is the meaningful work as we're all moving forward. And, you know, you're somebody that's been in this field. You've been, you know, not only actively teaching, you've been installing systems, boots on the ground, learning all of this kind of stuff, and then working with that next generation of people that are also doing these types of things. I wanted to kind of shift and start to look at our current situation with the coronavirus and how that has really come through and it's disrupted our entire civilization you know, as we know it right now, everything is just, you know, we're realizing like how interconnected, you know, something like our healthcare system, when that becomes jeopardized, how it pulls on the strings of all of these other 
systems that we rely on for our you know, society and for our culture. And yet, you know, in permaculture, we've been talking about, you know, building redundancy, building in resilience, building in these backup systems for a long time. I mean, that essentially is like the, the beginnings of the permaculture movement as this response to essentially crisis. <laughs> and, totally. you know, here we are and we're in it. And I'm curious from your perspective, how you've been kind of viewing some of these challenges that we've been facing. First off, I think one of the things the pandemic has shown us, which we've always known under the surface, we, we, we know that we're part of this connected global community, this connected global society where for better or for worse, we're all, we're all connected in a globalized economic system whether it be food or medicine or material goods or education or, or what have you, we're connected in these, in these ways and we're physically connected. And a powerful revelation that this pandemic has brought is just how physically connected we are globally, that a virus that has to you know, move from person to person can spread around the world in a short few months. And so we are all connected and I think one of the spotlights that's being put on our world and on human structures right now is all the weak points, all the weak links, all the ways that the systems have been propped up without a solid foundation. And so we're moving into recession. People are losing their jobs. Luxury services are disappearing. You know, it goes on and on and on. And I think that while we're going to get into the opportunities of how we can shift into a regenerative culture, I also want to acknowledge all of the folks who are caught in the system right now. And just my heart goes out. I feel grief for people who are losing their jobs, have an uncertain future, or whose family members are sick or who are sick. And you know, there's a lot of grief and a lot of intense trauma happening right now in the global community. So sort of like acknowledging that and waking up to the fact that we've, our whole system has been propped up essentially on sand, you know, a castle built on sand and it's, and, and things are sort of falling and collapsing around you, even depend, no matter what someone believes if the camp pandemic is, you know, just a regular flu or whatnot, it's having this economic impact. That's, that's a reality, mm-hmm. not a conspiracy. So I think part of what this moment offers us is two different parts, two different paths. And while we have an opportunity to look at hyper-local development of systems now, how do we create hyper-local structures that grow food, that help people build their immunity, preventative medicine, that take care of each other in a communal way, through mutual aid services, through supporting our healthcare workers, you know, all of that, how do we localize and hyper-localize our entire society? Globalized localization. My friend David Solnit coined that term years ago and wrote a great book called Globalized Localization. And so I love that idea. But the other piece too is not losing sight of the community healing that can take place right now. So there's a urgent need to start building safety nets in our communities to grow food and protect those who are the most vulnerable. And there's an urgent need for us to look at the human experiment on earth to look at the trauma, to look at the grief and turn a compassionate 
in a compassionate way towards healing each other, towards loving each other, towards forgiving each other. And it's this combination in my mind, which is the most powerful, not one or the other. It's, it's both and. It's coming back home to the garden together. Maybe not hand in hand, you know, six feet apart, <laughs> but coming back nonetheless and opening our hearts up to something that is new and something as different. And I think that's where permaculture has been so effective over the years is visioning something totally different than the globalized economy the way it is. Visioning something that's different than the food system, the industrialized food system, the way it is. And so there's a lot of vision that we've been cultivating for decades for how to transition away from this globalized economy into hyper-local economies. And now that so much pressure is being put on the world and so many things are destabilized, there is this moment to sort of offer the solutions in a way that's palatable, that's accessible, and capture as, as many hearts and minds as possible in what could be a complete revolution in our food system and a complete transformation of our economy. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that kind of two-pronged uh, approach. I mean, much of what I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks here, as we've also been isolated and trying to kind of wrap my mind around this situation is, I mean, one, like you were saying, these hyper-local systems are really, it's the only way that we can secure our you know, basic necessities in a way that has you know, resilience and redundancy built into it. And there's no way that we can look at these kind of globalized systems of you know, many parts that could potentially break and having that, that localized piece that would help stabilize it. And the one piece that uh, I think a lot of folks don't often think about when we start to look at these localized solutions, it's not like a uh, or the way I see it, a, you know, one or the other, you know, it's, it's a way that we can kind of work in tangent with, you know, the global system as a way of kind of like, you know, getting our feet in the door, setting up our systems to have in place. Because I do know that, you know, things like the food crisis that we've been seeing as a result of, you know, all this panic buying, if our communities were set up, say, with a whole diversity and a whole host of different ways of producing food, you know, from having way more farms to, you know, just about every neighborhood having neighborhood gardens and community gardens and ways of kind of working that, that we wouldn't really be feeling that same level of stress when you look at the grocery store shelves, for instance, and you're just not seeing anything there. Totally. Um, and I want to just add that, like what you said about it's both and the hyper-local system development in tangent with the global economy. That's a really important point because we don't want to be so privileged in our thinking that everybody has space for a garden or that everybody has resources or access to developing hyper-local. We've got communities all around the world that are lacking in any kind of resources to, to mobilize themselves. And so I want to acknowledge that and say that that it's a transitionary moment, right? And that we still are reliant on this global system, but some communities are going to move quicker into local production than others just because of privilege and resources and things like that, passion. And so we've got to, you know, look at both and, and then share the surplus, share the wisdom, share the knowledge, do the training, share the seeds, share the plants and start spreading out and helping more and more communities. And it's going to take years to accomplish a complete transformation, but 
we've got a good beginning. Yeah. Now, the second part of what you were talking about there, I can't remember what you exactly said. Was it community healing? Is mm-hmm. that- yeah. Yeah. Looking at our trauma, feeling our grief, looking at the inequality in the system. And because really, one thing that I've learned over 20 years doing permaculture and activism and teaching thousands of students, and we call it, you know, as permaculture teachers, it's like we have conversations that, okay, after two weeks, you realize that you're also sort of like, a therapist at times because <laughs> yep. people are up against their programming, up against their emotional challenges, up against their traumas. And one of the failings of doing the work at times is that we're not including people's emotional journey in the process of understanding how they are nature that needs restoration as well. And if we can't look at the mind and the body and the heart and how that affects our decision-making, I don't think we're going to be able to massively grow the physical land-based side of this work without looking at that mind-body-heart side. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important insight, you know, to looking at the, the holistic perspective of what we're working with and something that's not often acknowledged, I think, in the permaculture movement where, you know... I mean, Bill Mollison himself was definitely opposed to a lot of those kinds of avenues. And I think that's kind of radiated out. But if we're being honest with, you know, where we are and and how we actually work, it's like we have to acknowledge our own feelings and our own, uh, you know, relationships and, you know, just how we operate. Yeah, I think a a very beautiful uh, way of looking at it. Because it all comes down to decision making. It comes down to having a willingness to make a change a willingness to take the time and energy that you have and devote it into a certain direction. And all of those decision-making mechanisms and all of that inspiration and the passion to do one thing or another, to make a choice to, I'm going to grow food out my backyard, or uh, I'll just go down to Costco and I'll just live off that or whatever it might be. Um, those are inner, those are inner uh, decisions that are being made. They're coming from inside people, not outside people. And the amount of times I've seen permaculture students just essentially go come out of a permaculture course that was super cool, super overwhelming, and then have no application of it or be totally turned off by it or, you know, and so it's just, it's trying to be realistic, honestly. And I, and I love the, the, you know, get shit done attitude. And I, and I also agree with, to the degree that in the permaculture community, we talk about, let's not make this spiritual or religious or anything like that. Let's just keep it to the science and to the work. I actually agree with all that. Um, But we are all human beings. We are all people. We all have these inner mechanisms, these inner ecologies that affect what we do and how we show up and, and, and how we make decisions. And especially in a time of trauma, like we're experiencing now, especially right now, it's even more important to look at that side so that we can make decisions in a positive way and we can really help and support and heal each other. I mean, just in our own families right now, it's like how many folks are having arguments with their spouses and it's really not about the argument. It's just about the fear and the panic and the unknown. And, 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 and then people, we're at each other, we're at each other. Well, how is that helping to facilitate developing those regenerative systems if you're expending so much energy in panic? so much energy and anxiety, so much energy and communication. Um, so, yeah. I think that definitely brings up some really valid and important discussion points, you know, as we begin to move forward and start to look at, okay, you know, here we are and we're in this, this 
extremely challenging time. It's it's something that none of us in, you know, at least here in the U.S. and much of like, you know, Western cultures around the world, we've never been in this kind of situation that we can recall in our lifetimes. And, you know, even going back to our grandparents, I mean, this is kind of new territory. And a lot of people aren't sure how they're going to be able to pay their bills or, you know, rent, mortgage, whatever it is. I mean, we've got people out of jobs. And there is going to be a lot of fear and grief around that. Now, for me personally, one way that I tend to kind of work through that is to look for things that are going to be these positive ways rather than trying to to dwell on like, okay, well, this is happening. It's a, a, it's a negative experience. I'm really freaking out. But, you know, if I have something to begin to kind of work towards where I can kind of see that light, you know, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel, that is going to be this optimism, you know, that at least can get me through that initial maybe fear or initial grief. And I'm curious from what you've been seeing over these last couple of weeks, like, have you, like, what are some of these ways that you've been kind of looking at to mobilize your local community? Gardens, gardens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Every last bit of soil and land that we have access to, this is the message we've been spreading in our community. This is the message we've been spreading around, you know, really the world. I had a webinar that I did yesterday. 500 people came on this web live webinar called Building Your Pandemic Victory Garden. They were from all over the planet. We're having this amazing conversation right now, which is the revitalization, the renewal of, of the kitchen garden. Really, it's really, it's the kitchen garden. We could call it a victory garden or a homestead garden or a resilience garden. But you know, our ancestors for thousands of years have cultivated these kitchen gardens. And these are places that are essentially surrounding your home with all the food that you need for your family. and. Folks, you know, one of the messages we need to get across is that everybody has some kind of landscape, whether it's asphalt or it's gravel or it's a lawn or, you know, it's a dirt lot or it's natives. There's land around, you know, there's even if it is covered in concrete, there's still a lot we can do with straw bale gardens, with container gardens, we grow mushrooms. There's a lot that we can do in almost every type of system and ecology. And now people are realizing, wow, I need to grow food and I have a lot of time right now. Stuck at home, I'm isolated, I'm quarantined. Let me do something productive for my family. And so what we're seeing is like this resurgence of interest. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is really trying to meet those needs. And one of the things we've discovered is there's a lot of folks who have never gardened before, who've never grown food before, never put a seed in the ground, who are super turned on right now. And they are just craving information and craving support and craving guidance. And so one of the things that we're saying to folks is, you know, one, start right outside your back door or your front door. And two, get a seed supply together whether it's ordering seeds, it's getting it locally from the nursery or the hardware store, or it's sharing with neighbors or friends or people you know in the community, you know, really lean on your local communities, lean on the master gardeners, lean on the farmers, lean on the permaculture people and the ecology people, because a lot of these folks do have seed stashes and a lot of these folks have resources to share. And we've been in many ways, at least in the permaculture community, 
no, we've been setting up these safety nets for decades. And so that's been one of the big important things. And here in California, it's spring and there's a lot we can plant in the ground. Right now, we could be sowing spinach, carrots, beets, lettuce, kale. You know, all this could get sown in the ground. We could be putting potatoes in the ground right now. And in seed flats, under a little cold frame or a little hothouse or in a greenhouse, we can be planting our squashes and our tomatoes and our peppers and our cabbages. And, and one of the important aspects of helping people set up their food systems now is the concept of succession and rotation. That if you only have a limited amount of space and you want to grow food and be able to go out there and harvest every single day, month after month after month, then you're going to want to plant a mix of quick growing crops like radishes, spinach, lettuce, kale are fairly quick and get those in the ground right away and you can start harvesting in a few weeks. Then you want those longer term crops, cabbage, potatoes, tomatoes, things that take longer and you start working a succession like lettuce and greens, for instance. I mean, we've been having a salad in my house every night for the past you know, many weeks. But if we don't keep planting our greens every couple of weeks, what's going to happen is at some point, all of our lettuce is going to either be harvested or it's going to go to seed and then we don't have any to harvest. And now our cycle has been off. So I've really been encouraging folks to think about this idea of succession and rotation. If you get a packet of lettuce seeds, don't plant all the lettuce seed today. Plant maybe a quarter of it today. Wait two weeks, plant a quarter of it. Wait two weeks, plant a quarter of it. And this is how we're going to start creating and growing, producing an incredible amount of food in every one of our backyards, front yards, on our porches, in our windowsills. And the other aspect is, one, the food will most likely be higher in nutrient value. It's going to be fresher, higher in nutrient value. And things like kale and spinach are very high in zinc and other minerals that are proven to help build your immunity, fight off viral infections. So we're also literally growing medicine, immune building, preventative medicine in all of these growing spaces. And because, well, here in Northern California, we're still getting a little bit of rain. I don't know if you guys had any in Southern California. Yeah, we've had a great last few weeks. So with the fact that we still have a little rain coming in, there's a chance to get some seeds in the ground, to let the rain help water them in. We'll just say for all the listeners out there, if you're planting seeds, you want to water them every single day, unless a rainstorm came through. Just keep them wet until they, until they sprout. And there's no time like now to literally have a revolution in, backyard, in the backyard garden. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can really underestimate the value that could be derived from a garden. And, you know, permaculture is so much more than the garden, but oftentimes it's like we could look at that really as this metaphor for supplying and solving so many of our complex problems. And and food right now is that one that everybody's kind of looking at. But, you know, when we start to get into like carbon sequestration and water and the hydrologic cycle and nutrient cycling and all of that, it's like, it all happens right there. And that's always what gives me so much optimism. And I feel lucky even, you know, we've been trying to move for the last couple of weeks onto a, a new property that we've been developing. And so our home garden at our, our rental, it's been a little, you know, under the, under the weather, just so to speak. And 
as we've been kind of like packing up. <laughs> and then this whole thing happened, which is really, you know, pointing out some of, again, that fragility of just those times where, you know, you try to plan for these catastrophic events and you never know, you know, by definition when that's going to happen. And something that I've also seen, you know, locally here with this is one, like you were saying, there's a huge boom in interest of people gardening and particularly these first time growers or maybe some people that have a little experience, but they really want to, you know, dive in there. And at the same time, our economy has kind of come to a halt and being able to distribute a lot of these resources whether we're talking soil, compost, seeds, plants, starts, you know, all of that is kind of also taking a hit. You know, much like the grocery stores, I mean, what I've seen here is like nurseries are getting wiped out of their veggie starts. They're getting wiped out of their seeds. Local seed companies, which around here, we only have uh, one as far as I can think of. And so if you're not saving those seeds, you're finding it a really hard time even procuring some of these materials. Which gets me thinking, and kind of where I want to go here is, yeah, having a garden is great. And there's lots of opportunity there, I think, for us to mobilize and build a movement around that to essentially inoculate our culture into a whole nother paradigm. But there's these community aspects that I think are going to be even more valuable right now of trying to facilitate that kind of rapid transfer of knowledge, experience, and all of that that can kind of, you know, elevate us to that next level. What I really love about these kind of, I mean, as hard as they are, and as traumatic and fearful as we're all in, I oftentimes think, you know, bring back to like the permaculture uh, language, I mean, this is kind of putting us all in our edge of what our comfort zones are. And what I tend to experience is that the further we kind of move to those edges of our our comfort zone is often when we have like these great breakthroughs and these great, uh, you know, moments of insight and, and kind of come out the other side stronger and more resilient as a result. So what are you seeing are some, you know, ways that we can be in at this point right now to engage our communities and begin to, you know, push some of these other uh, ideas or make them available for quick and rapid adoption? Certainly, there's a gift economy that is happening right now. And I believe this is part of the solution to that is folks are showing up and they're saying, hey, I'm going to do a free webinar, a free training. I'm going to do this live thing. I'm going to play music for you. I'm going to read stories to your children. I'm going, you know, we're, this, people are just showing up in these beautiful and miraculous ways, even through just online to, to gift knowledge and to gift um, support and things like that. And so I think that one part of how this emerges, that how we build the connections and, and start to, and start to share knowledge is that we're relearning what it means to have a gift economy, truly have a widespread gift economy in our culture. And that can be really scary as well, because folks who have small businesses and generally might provide these services for a fee are, are, you know, now 
got to give it away. And, you know, other than that person's giving it away. And so I should probably do that too. And, and so there's a lot of uncertainty economically, but I think it's all going to work out in the end because essentially what we're doing is we're bringing in tens of thousands of new folks into an ecological consciousness. And I think that the garden is a great place to start because as soon as you start looking at your garden, you're starting to think about, oh, my kitchen waste, what should I do with that? Oh, okay. I guess composting worms. Okay. I need to learn about that. And then, oh, we start getting into summer. How am I going to keep all this watered? Is that a water bill? Do I have water catchment? Oh boy, water. And so the beautiful thing about the garden is it's kind of initiates this experience that starts at, you start asking all these questions about energy and fertility and water. And you also, as you get outside, you start to observe natural systems more. Oh, what are the birds? That's all oh, the birds are doing that and the squirrels are doing that. And it's like, wow, I didn't even realize that that bird ever came to my yard. So I think there's a, there's an opportunity just that the garden is this great initiator for that. But I believe that the gift economy that's emerging in combination with this sharing of knowledge is going to change, I hope, that a new type of economy sort of emerges out of this, where there's a wider spread sharing of knowledge, a bigger focus on community support, on supporting each other who need different things. The mutual aid efforts that are happening around the world are incredible. People going out, buying groceries, getting supplies for other folks who can't go out. That's that kind of goodwill. And that's the kind of way we want to show up as humans for, our, for each other and, and in our communities. And so I think that there's a lot of great online tools right now that can help capture the energy and then create platforms to disseminate knowledge and create training. We just started a Facebook group yesterday called Pandemic Victory Gardens. And there's already a few hundred people on there and folks are from all over the world. And we're sharing, hey, anyone know where I can get seeds? I'm in this community. And it was really amazing. We just had two people from Croatia with the same name living in towns next door to each other, just connected on that group and and want to share resources. So I think that creating, if we can all start creating more opportunities that are really accessible for people to engage to connect with one another and then share resources. And I also think that the local farmers are one of our biggest resources right now in our local communities. Um, not everybody can get the garden. And like you said, oh, I can't find seeds. I can't get compost delivered, you know, or I'm homeschooling my children and they have special needs and I'm not really able to be in the garden all day. There's a lot of scenarios that aren't going to allow people to go build their resilience gardens and then that's where the local farmers are showing up. I've got, we've got lots of CSAs and lots of farmers around here. I know of at least two CSAs that added over 100 extra members within like a two or three day period in the mm-hmm. last week. Oh my God, totally maxed out. We just added another 100 members. I mean, 100 members is like enough for an entire CSA. These farms are big enough to, to absorb that. And those farmers, you know, if we can start creating that education system, if permaculture people can step up and master gardeners can step up, what we can do while we teach our communities how to grow food is we have time then. If our local farmers can keep supporting the community with fresh food, then folks who want to learn and who don't quite have the seeds and the resources now, we have time to teach people about how to save seed. And we need to think successionally. We're in a bit of a response phase right now, or, you know, a reaction phase, uh, which is important. But I think that as designers, as permaculture designers, we also need to step back 
and look at, well, where does this moment fit into a succession? And what are we going to need six months from now? What are we going, how are we going to move? What's possible in a year from now? And we use our, our visionary skills. And one of the things that I think we can do, like the seeds shortage, is that each community could start their own seed bank, their mm-hmm. own local seed bank. And it's only going to take about, I don't know, what, seven or eight months. And if, we're, if everyone starts growing seed, those who can, you're going to have a seed bank with tens of thousands of seeds available for the community, hundreds of pounds, lots of different varietals. So it's one of the angles I've been educating my community a lot about is, hey, you know, let a few of those lettuces bolt. Let them go to seed. It's okay if it doesn't look great. I, I think this is another piece too, is the cultural aesthetic is something mm. that is, there's a time to shift our cultural aesthetic around. In the United States and in Western culture, kind of born out of the English Rose Garden, there's a need for very clean lines, very, very, um, you know, well-managed and manicured systems and, you know, all that kind of thing. And there's definitely a, an appeal to that that I get. Um, but natural ecosystems aren't always looking perfect, you know, and especially if you want to get the harvest of seed, then you really are allowing things to kind of look weedy and ratty and, and, and maybe not as aesthetic as people like. So we've got to shift that cultural aesthetic around and teach people how to grow seed, develop those local seed banks, and then continue with this gift economy for now in ways that we can disseminate information. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of incredible points there. I mean, that we need to you know, reassess just what our, you know, vision of what beauty is, is kind of like one way to look at that. Another way that I'm seeing this, these particular situations is like all of these shortages are really pointing out the opportunities that haven't been taken advantage of. You know, if we're kind of looking at it from a site assessment perspective, it's like, okay, we, we have unfulfilled niches here. And there's lots of opportunity, both from, you know, people that could have potential businesses doing that, as well as just, you know, if you want to have security growing out and, and you don't have to, that, that's the one piece that I think a lot of people get turned off on is thinking that they have to do it all, you know, in terms of saving it. And it's like, you know, just doing it, starting off with like a lettuce or a tomato. It's, it, these are not hard things. I mean, tomatoes are probably one of the easier ones because you're harvesting them essentially at the same time that you would for eating. You're just keeping the seeds. So it's a, you know, a lot of real easy pieces there. And then I think a lot of people also get turned off a little bit on the, you know, thinking that this is something complicated that, you know, like it's left to the realm of the experts. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, well, there's a reason that there's certain seed companies out there and they must be doing something right. Or what if it's crossed with something, you know, and it's not going to be the same. It's like, well, that, is this beauty of this 10,000 year old tradition that we have that's created these amazing varietals that we have around the planet and they do it themselves. <laughs> really, you know, a lot of seed saving is just kind of, I, I almost consider it neglect. <laughs> it really can be. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of walk away and, and there they, they begin to kind of pop up. I will say though that tomato seeds do need to be fermented. Yes. So they are a little bit trickier, but still very easy. And there's a lot of great books out there. The Seed Savers Exchange has put out some great seed saving books that help you with your pollination stuff. But like you said, a lot of this is a lot easier than people think. 
and I really want to take a lot of the hurdles away from folks, the mental hurdles. So mm-hmm. people can just know that it's okay to make mistakes and it's natural, but nature is very forgiving and you're going to have a lot of success. You're going to have some failure and you're also going to have a lot of success. Kind of no matter what you do, if you get out there and get seeds in the ground and start watering them, things are just going to happen. One piece that you were mentioning there was, you know, looking at this situation with coronavirus from a kind of succession point of view. And right now we're essentially kind of in this, you know, triage side where it's like, okay, we're hit, we're taking assessment and stock and trying to kind of, you know, make some immediate actions, you know, get the gardens in the ground, get our food supply and security kind of underway. But moving forward, I would love to hear like what your vision would be and where your passion is and what really kind of drives you in some of this work that you're doing and keeps you motivated and going through even these challenging times as well? I've seen the most degraded landscapes, the ones that have been compacted and asphalted over and neglected, turn into ecological, edible forest gardens in like two years. And those experiences, seeing how quickly a damaged piece of land can become an oasis for life, a food production, medicine production system. It just gives me so much hope. And while there's so much to feel down about in the world, and there has been before this virus, you know, there's a lot, there's, uh, I've personally felt as an activist, a lot of grief around, around things that happen in the world. I just find so much hope in the garden. And I want to just share that hope with everybody. I want everyone to have that experience because I feel like in some ways we've, we're living in an illusion in our minds about the kind of world we have to be in, that this world that we're in now, this global economy, this high technology, and the way things are, it feels like the dominant paradigm of our culture is believes that that's the only choice. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to say, it's not. That is not the only world that we have to live in. And that there's this completely other part of our experience of being human on earth, which is directly rooted in soil and plants and wildlife and ecology and water and in community. And that if we turn our attention towards the natural ecosystem, we are going to find abundance. We're going to heal our physical issues. We're going to heal our emotional issues. We're going to come together in community and we're going to create something where people can really thrive. And that's what drives me is knowing that this possibility is there for our world, for people around the world, that this thriving life, this thriving livelihood, this local um, way of being in our communities is possible. Mm-hmm. And that nature is, is a gift. And those are some of the things that drive me a lot because I've seen it. I've seen it happen firsthand. And I've also been in activist circles and activist communities. I've been with organizing communities. I've worked with all different kinds of people all over the world. And I see what happens when people come together for a garden party. I mean, let's bring celebration back into the work because we are 
species that celebrate. We, we need to bring that joy back into the work that we do. And I think that a lot of the work that people do in the world don't bring them joy. It's not a joyful experience. And people are feeling stuck and trapped in the lives that they have. And so, so I'm just so encouraged when I'm out in the garden and I'm out on the land in community and we're doing it together and we're singing and we're playing music and we're sitting around the fire and we're planting seeds and we're building gardens and we're cooking together. And I think that that world, that life, everyone's birthright is to be able to live like that. Yeah. What a, what a beautiful vision and, and one that I think all of us can really, you know, see ourselves in. It's something that I think is ingrained in what people want in this existence of this, you know, life that we're all in. And, you know, at the same time, it's like we get caught up in just the day to day of whatever it is. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And, you know, what I love about, you know, the work that you're doing is that you're, you're constantly out there and just, you know, making that awareness visible. And, you know, it's like we need people in all of our communities that are literally showing these solutions that are setting the example and, and really painting the vision of what could happen. Because like you said, in two years, you could have a really amazing, you know, ecosystem of food, medicine, fiber, and all of that, as well as the, the community side that we can begin to build through these metaphors of, you know, looking at the lens of permaculture in the garden, right? Yeah. So yeah. if people want to reach out and learn a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing, do we have some particular websites? I know you have the Permaculture Skills Center and Permaculture Artisans, but you also have a couple books. I've got some books. You just Google my name, Eric Olson. You can get in touch with my books. I've got a, a short ecological landscape professional book for folks who want to start their own businesses doing this kind of work. But I've also created a bunch of children's books, one, one called The Forest of Fire. We've been hit by a lot of wildfire over the last few years. And that one teaches children and adults about fire ecology in a, a little story, an illustrated story. And yeah, permacultureskillcenter.org, permacultureartisans.com. And then, you know, on Facebook, we've got a lot of different groups. There's the Pandemic Victory Garden Group, which is really taking off right now. We also have a couple online courses, which you can find about on our website. We've got a regenerative agroforestry course with Penny Livingston Stark, which is an amazing experience learning about how to set up you know, regenerative agroforestry, which could just be your home kitchen garden based on perennials, or it could be larger scale restoration agriculture models. And we have the Eco Landscape Mastery School, which is an online school for folks who want to start careers, becoming professional designers and installation contractors doing permaculture and regenerative design. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time here just to chat with us. Um, do you have any final thoughts or things that you wanted to say to the listeners? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I just want to say to everyone, wherever you're at right now, getting out into your garden, getting out onto the land, finding a way to get your hands in the earth will be healing medicine for you. Put those seeds in the ground and don't worry about making mistakes. That's part of the process. Make those mistakes and persevere and keep going and you will reap abundance. Well, that wraps up the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some value out of it. I know I did. I love chatting with Eric about permaculture. 
and particularly in this challenging time of looking for these points of optimism and for ways that we can collectively move forward. Because we can do this. There's so much to be learned and we will continue to learn how to thrive in these scenarios. So stay tuned for more episodes as we talk about more about permaculture and navigating through this challenging time that the coronavirus pandemic is really presenting. Show notes for today's episode can be found at permaculturefortheFuture.com slash episode 13. That's permaculturefortheFuture.com slash episode 13. And stay tuned for next week. We're bringing on Rob Avis from Canada to talk about permaculture. All right, so we'll see you all then. In the meantime, get out there and do something good. 